Hello, and welcome to Discern This. I'm your host, Lonzo Cook. Our guest today is Dr. Joachim Goes, biological oceanographer at Columbia University's Climate School. His current research centers on how ocean ecosystems are responding to climate change. Dr. Goes, welcome to Discern This. Thank you for having me on your show. Glad to be here. You've described algae as being the bellwether organism for human-driven climate and environmental change. First off, what are algae and what role do they play in the global ecosystem? Algae are basically uh, phytoplankton uh, that float in the sea. Um, they are able to photosynthesize and fix atmospheric carbon dioxide. So they essentially remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And they do this with the help of sunlight and, uh, and they produce oxygen. So every breath of oxygen, every second breath of oxygen that you take is, is coming from uh, oceanic phytoplankton or oceanic algae. Now, they have an important role in the food chain as well because they form the base of the food chain. And all other organisms depend on the organic matter that is produced by this phytoplankton to sustain uh, their metabolism. So the fish that you eat comes from what the phytoplankton uh, draw down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. One of your main areas of study is invasive algal blooms, such as the recurring one in the Arabian Sea. Could you tell us about the scale of that particular algal bloom and how does it come about? This particular species of algae that is occurring in the Arabian Sea is called Noctiluca scintillates. It's commonly known as sea sparkle. Um, it was never seen in the Arabian Sea until about 2000, the year 2000. And ever since then, uh, it has grown in uh, size, spatial extent, and it is spreading rapidly and has overtaken the ecosystem. What started as a small patch in 2000, um, in the year 2000, is now about three times the size of Texas. And that is the scale of this organism. So um, this organism um, is not your typical phytoplankton. It uh, fixes atmospheric carbon dioxide on, like your normal phytoplankton with the help of endosymbionts, but it also feeds on other organisms. So it is able to outcompete everything that is there in the water. So uh, it has a huge impact on the food web because nothing feeds on it. And it's giving rise to large jellyfish and salt blooms that we see in the Arabian Sea today. Should we understand the bloom to be primarily the result of human-related activity, such as fertilizer or sewage runoff? Yeah, this organism thrives in uh, oceanic waters that are rich in urea and ammonium. Um, and the major sources of that in the ocean, uh, especially the coastal ocean, are fertilizers and runoff from land. And in countries surrounding the uh, Arabian Sea, like India, Pakistan, which are predominantly agricultural economies, um, a lot of the fertilizers are utilized and they make their way into the rivers and eventually into the coastal oceans. And this fertilizers actually uh, form the initial or they provide the initial nutrients for this organism. 
but climate change has a huge impact. Um, so over the past uh, 20 years or so, the Arabian Sea has warmed by about 1.5 degrees centigrade. And it may seem like a small temperature difference uh, over this 20-year period, but uh, we are talking about an average over the entire Arabian Sea. Now, it has not only become uh, warmer, the water column has become more stratified or more stable. And this is a perfect environment for this organism to grow. And uh, the other issue is that these fertilizers and, um, that are coming from land have also uh, resulted in the hypoxic layer or the low oxygen water spreading in the Arabian Sea. And one of the reasons why this organism thrives in those waters in the Arabian Sea is because this area that is coming under low oxygen waters is spreading rapidly as well. So you have not only warming due to climate change, you also have the spread of hypoxia due to the warming and the nutrients coming from the land. So this unutilized fertilizers from agricultural waste and also um, human um, untreated uh, sewage that is coming into the agency or partially treated sewage. I guess the scientific phrase would be anthropomorphic eutrophication. Yes, the scientific term is called eutrophication, and that's a term that's generally used uh, by policymakers or decision makers. But uh, the real uh, nutrient loading is what describes eutrophication. So this is not a problem that is only unique to, uh, for instance, the Raven Sea. Here, back home uh, in New York City, Long Island Sound experiences eutrophication. They have so many sewage treatment plants that produce this hypoxia, and uh, that results in bloom formation, harmful algal bloom formation during uh, summer, late summer and fall. And in the Gulf of Mexico, for instance, we have um, a huge dead zone. And um, that is being fed by fertilizers that are coming through the Mississippi River. And by dead zone, you mean an area of very low oxygen and declining food. Exactly. Um, these hypoxic layers are areas where the oxygen concentrations are very uh, subnormal. And... Um, they reduce the metabolic uh, rate at which organisms uh, perform. And so it slows down their growth. Uh, the organism has to work twice or thrice at times to meet its metabolic requirements. And there's a lot, huge expansion of energy in doing so. And so they do not grow too well. So there are some organisms that thrive in low oxygen waters. One of them is sea sparkle or noctiluca. But there are many others that do not do well under this uh, under those conditions. Dr. Gose, what makes Noctiluca so special? Yeah, one of the reasons that makes it special is because of this uh, ability to photosynthesize with the help of its endosimans, which are enslaved in its central cytoplasm or its central um, cell. And... Um, the other thing is that uh, they feed on other stuff in the water. So anything that's smaller and even slightly larger than Noctiluca is consumed by Noctiluca itself. And so uh, because of this dual ability to photosynthesize and feed on other stuff, Noctiluca is able to thrive in these waters. 
And what is special about this organism, it is uh, an organism that seems to be doing well under hypoxic conditions. And now that we have this situation in the Arabian Sea where you have low oxygen waters and high CO2, it appears to be doing better than any other organism. So, and it is spreading, it's spreading so rapidly. So over this 20 year period, it has expanded so rapidly. And this is the only ecosystem that I've studied that has undergone so much change in such a short span of time. So is it its dual respiratory ability that enables it to outcompete other plankton? Yeah, so it's this heterotrophic ability um, and uh, it doesn't allow the other organisms to grow. It, it eats other things. Yes, so it doesn't allow them to grow. And it's an aggressive feeder as well. So, um, and the, the other special uh, property of uh, Noctiluca, if I may say so, is that nothing feeds on Noctiluca. None of the hydrophic organisms like zooplankton can easily feed on Noctiluca. And uh, because it's not palatable to other organisms, the only thing that eats on it, eats it is jellyfish or salps. And these are in turn consumed by, um, you have cuttlefish or squid. So the emergence of Noctiluca as an organism that is dominating the base of the food chain in the Arabian Sea, for not a few weeks, like typical blooms occur, this one um, uh, lasts for about three months. And so if it is there in the ecosystem for about three months, it can alter the food chain so easily. So over the past few years, um, landings from several countries around the Arabian Sea have shown that the catch of fish has gone down, but we are seeing a rise in squid and cuttlefish. So in the Middle East, for instance, uh, squid and cuttlefish are not the primary uh, sources of uh, seafood that they depend on. So most of it goes to exports probably. So some other countries might be benefiting from this cuttlefish or squid, but not uh, the countries in that area. I'd, I'd like to double click on that. As, as Noctiluca um, alters the food chain away from fish and towards squid and, and salps, is there an upside? There is an upside. Um, it's not all doom and gloom. Noctiluca has certain properties that can be harnessed. For instance, it accumulates a lot of ammonium and uric acid within its central cytoplasm. So imagine if you can harvest this um, uh, Noctiluca blooms and use it as fertilizer. Another unique property of Noctiluca is that it has got UV absorbing compounds. And that's the reason why it is able to thrive under this high tropical uh, light intensities, which contain a lot of UV light. And so this UV absorbing compounds actually protect the photosynthetic machinery from damage. But can you imagine, um, this could be a natural source of UV protectants for human beings, for instance. You could use these uh, compounds in creams, um, you know, some kind of cosmetics that people normally use as sunscreen. So there's an upside to it as well. Uh, Noctiluca may have many, many more compounds that could be useful for human beings. 
Dr. Gose, is there anything new to be discovered about Noctiluca? There's so much to be discovered about Noctiluca. There's so much that we do not know. And so it's really important that um, we try, for instance, we do not know what is the interaction between the host Noctiluca cell and the endosymbionts that live within Noctiluca. So how do they exist in this symbiotic relationship is something that we really need to understand. And here at Columbia University, we have partnered uh, with um, scientists and, and engineers from the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. And uh, they are allowing us to harness the power of nanotechnology to study these interactions. So one of the uh, biggest developments that has taken place is that they've been able to develop a chip, an optical chip that can be inserted in Noctiluca cell. This chip is about 50 microns. It's thinner. It cannot be seen with the naked eye. You need a microscope to see it. And it has got the complete electronics on it. And so this chip, when inserted inside the cell, will be able to tell us the internal environmental conditions like the amount of uric acid there is in the cell, the amount of ammonium, the pH, the CO2 concentrations, the oxygen. So without killing the cell, if you are able to get this data streamed to us as the cell is evolving and growing, it can tell us a lot more about this ecosystem within Noctiluca. So the cell looks like a greenhouse with a lot of these endosymbionts within it. And so we really need to understand how they interact with each other and you know, utilize um, each other to grow and outcompete other organisms. Will Noctiluca bloom spread to other areas of the world as oceans warm, become more acidic and less oxygenated? That's our hypothesis at the moment. And we are seeing early signs of it. Uh, Noctiluca has been seen throughout Southeast Asia now and um, in parts of Tanzania, Kenya. So it's spreading down southwards. And it has also been reported from the Maldives. It has been reported from Seychelles. So it's expanding its range. Um, and I think as the oceans warm and become more and more hypoxic, and many parts of the world's ocean are tending towards this, um, this state where you have low oxygen concentrations in the water and the warming taking place. So I would not be surprised if we see it being reported from China over the next few years as well. So it is expanding not only southwards in the Indian Ocean, but it's also migrating to the Pacific Ocean. Noctiluca's effects extend beyond fisheries to broader economic interests. What are the other negative impacts of Noctiluca blooms? Yes, so one of the countries that we have been working very closely is uh, the Sultanate of Oman. And we've been working with the Ministry of Fisheries over there to develop an early warning system. And the reason why it's important for them is it not only affects um, their food, the amount of fish they are landing, but one of the greatest fears is that it affects their water supply. So whenever you have, absolutely, it is a huge water security issue in that area. Desalination plants or? Yes, uh, most of these countries actually depend on seawater 
that is that comes into desalination plants and it, it produces fresh water. Now, when you have noctiluca and jellyfish in the water, they clog the intake channels of um, seawater and that cripples the plants from functioning. And so they have these periods uh, where they have uh, shortages of water. So it's a water security problem in that area. It's a food security problem. And it's also a national security problem because, um, you know, naval vessels that patrol that area, um, the time that they can spend at sea is reduced because they too depend on seawater for, for fresh water. They have desalination plants on board. So when you have this excessive amounts of jellyfish or noctiluca in the water, it clogs their intake. And so instead of being able to stay for about five or six days, um, they sometimes can, uh, they can stay in the water just for about two or three days. So their endurance out at sea is also reduced. So their ability to patrol the waters over longer periods is also reduced. So uh, we have the, um, not only the Oman Navy operating in that region uh, to keep the oil route um, open, but we have um, countries from uh, the USA has got its naval fleet over there. We have China, France, and all operating. Initially, it was to control piracy. Um, but can you imagine if uh, the endurance of the ships is reduced? It also is an energy security problem for us. So there is a connection between energy supply and this tiny organism that is spreading uh, throughout the region. And the Raven Sea is a gateway to the Middle East. So uh, it, uh, we have to look at all angles of what uh, impacts it's having on that, not only the ecosystem, but the water and energy security issues in that region. Yeah, that's, it's an extremely strategic area, and it's uh, amazing to think that a microorganism like that can uh, impede the operational efficiency of navies and... Absolutely, yes. ...by impact, perhaps, yeah. you know, energy security and trade flows. Yeah, and one of the unique uh, things that I men didn't mention about Noctiluca earlier is that it, it exists uh, at the surface and you would think that this organism is able to photosynthesize better under those conditions. But it turns out when they come to the surface, they resort to this feeding mode. So they feed really aggressively when they're at the surface, but they do well, um, they photosynthesize better when they're in low light. So you may ask the question, what are they doing with this excess heat, uh, light energy that they're absorbing? So it turns out whenever you have this noctiluca blooms, the water gets heated up as well. So this heating of the water is accelerated. Uh, so the seawaters um, become warmer than normal when you have a noctiluca bloom. So it, we are not very sure right now, but we think that it is having an impact on the monsoon cycle as well. So there is a feedback loop. Yeah, it, it, it's a feedback factor, the biological feedback. The other thing is that Noctiluca produces a lot of uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids, uh, lipids. It forms these globules that you can see very clearly under a microscope. So it, it can be used as a food supplement uh, if you can, ex can extract those oils within Noctiluca.
I'd like to now move to consider land ecosystems, Dr. Gose. What are the causes of algal blooms in lakes? Yeah, uh, algal blooms in lakes are, are quite common, but this year the problem was pretty severe. Um, most of our lakes had huge outbreaks of algal blooms. Here in the United States. The reason is, yes, um, throughout the continental USA, uh, they were reported from Europe as well. Uh, so one of the problems um, this year in particular was we had an extremely warm summer. Uh, we had temperatures that were in excess of two degrees than normal. And most of the slow lakes became warmer and more conducive to the growth of this algae. Um, so the organisms that um, cause this outbreak in lakes are slightly different than the ones that we see in coastal waters or open ocean waters like Noctiluca. And the reason why they can thrive in lake waters is because lake waters contain um, excessive amounts of phosphate. And this is so, uh, sodium biphosphate uh, that is used to make um, drinking water a little alkaline. And the reason why we do that, especially in uh, states like New York, is that we had um, a plumbing system that relied on lead pipes in the past. And um, we have, uh, when you make this water alkaline, it precipitates out all the heavy metals like lead, iron, and so humans uh, are prevented from consuming it. So the reason why they use make the waters alkaline is to reduce the load of heavy metals or completely eliminate it. Now this excess phosphate is present in most of our lake waters and the algae that benefits from this are cyanobacteria or blue-green algae, that's a common name for them. And so these organisms are able to fix atmospheric nitrogen and they are able to use this excess phosphate that is present in the water. Other phytoplankton that are present in the water run out of nitrogen or nitrate. And because the cyanobacteria are able to fix atmospheric nitrogen, they are able to utilize that excess phosphate and thrive in those waters. So when you have a warm year and the water is really calm and stratified, you have this algae growing like crazy. And in fact, um, right from the Great Lakes uh, in the north to many of the lakes down south, even in Florida, you had this massive outbreaks of algal blooms this year. Uh, right next to our university, we had the Morningside uh, Park where there's a small pond where we've been seeing um, these huge blooms of cyanobacteria and they mostly belong to a group called microcystis which can sometimes be toxic and harmful to uh, humans. And so if you go to most of the lakes around the city or ponds around the city, you'll see signs that have been put up that there's a harmful algal bloom outbreak and the waters could be toxic for your pets. So they advise you not to go into the waters. Are there ways to control or reduce algal blooms? Um, yes, uh, so we have done some preliminary tests in the lab and we have identified some minerals that can be used to control this. And these are very simple solutions that can be immediately used for controlling these blooms. 
Um, in the past, um, some of the minerals that have been prescribed include clay, and this is commonly used in China, uh, where they, the clay contains some compounds. Uh, one of them is lanthanum. Um, clay also um, sticks to the algae, and this cooperative sedimentation that occurs allows the algae to sink, and so it takes them out from the water column. Um, what we have prescribed is slightly different uh, for the Arabian sea blooms. Um, I mentioned that we need the waters are hypoxic, so we need some compounds that can make the waters uh, oxic, so increase the oxygen levels. And one of the most common ways I think that would control these blooms in lakes as well is that if you start bubbling the water, because most of these uh, organisms cannot grow when the water column is agitated. So, and it's oxygenated as well. What is the role of satellite technology in terms of monitoring and managing invasive algal blooms? Yes, uh, so for a long time, uh, since the year 1997, 1998, we have had satellites that measure the color of the oceans. And so um, the color of the oceans can tell you what species are there in the water. So in the past, we had this multispectral sensors, uh, which measured the light reflected from the oceans at certain wavelengths. Um, because phytoplankton themselves absorb a lot of light that impinges on the surface of the ocean. So depending on what kind of pigments they have, they'll absorb a particular kind of light. So the light that is unutilized or not absorbed by these pigments is reflected back. And the color of that light will tell you, if you invert that uh, reflectance signature, it will tell you what are the pigments in the water. And from those pigments in the water, you can infer what kind of phytoplankton are there. Now, it has been a little bit difficult uh, to identify exactly what kind of species that are there in the water with using multispectral uh, sensors. But we have a satellite that is going to be launched by NASA in uh, January of 2024. It's called PACE. It's a hyperspectral sensor. So it measures it at many, many more wavelengths than you would the normal uh, satellites do right now. And so that will give us the ability to look at a multitude of pigments and actually look at the uh, reflectance signatures to, in, to look at a specific kind of phytoplankton in the water. Once the satellite goes up in space, it will provide us the ability to monitor how these algal blooms are evolving. So you can monitor where the blooms are appearing and you can target your your solution or whatever minerals that you want to um, put out to control the blooms. So in that way, you can manage the blooms. It's like monitoring forest fires from space. So once you identify which regions are prone to um, fire and where the fire is occurring, you can target your aircraft to go and dump um, the fire retardants. Um, in our case, it will be a chemical or a mineral that will reduce the growth of this algae and stop it from spreading. And going back to the algal bloom in the Arabian Sea that you've been studying for years, that is so large it can be easily seen from space, I read. Yes, it can be seen from space, but for a long time uh, we 
didn't know whether we could monitor it from space. We can only say it's absent or present. But with the new satellite, we can tell what is the actual quantity. So it will give us an idea of the amount of noctiluca that is present and what will be the amount of treatment that you can apply to control it. As part of satellite technology, how does ocean color sensing help us address large-scale climactic questions? That's an excellent question. Actually, once you are able to get an overview of how the algal blooms are evolving from space, you can connect it with other satellite data. And for instance, in the Arabian Sea, we were able to discern what was causing the spread of these blooms, and we were able to trace it to the melting of snow caps in the Himalayan mountains. So um, this wouldn't have been possible by ships or you know, uh, data being collected by ships alone. You need something that will give you the big picture. And so we were able to connect the dots and find out that the melting of the snow in the Himalayan mountains is causing the warming of the Arabian Sea, the spread of hypoxia as well. And this in turn was affecting uh, the ability of Noctiluca to grow. So we recently reported that the range expansion of Noctiluca is actually tied to the snow melt in the Himalayan mountains, the shrinking of the snow caps. So that wouldn't have been possible without the help of satellite data. So satellite data now uh, provides you information about so sea surface winds, the currents, so it can tell you how this algae is moving in the water, for instance, how it's spreading. Um, it gives you information about the temperature at which uh, they grow, for instance. And so we can use this information in models actually to predict the outbreaks of these algal blooms. And it's useful for tourism as well. Whenever you have algae in the water, people do not like to go into the water uh, because the waters are green and they're not blue. So people avoid water. So it has a huge impact on uh, tourism and all forms of seawater recreation. As we come to the end of our conversation, what would you like the public to understand about the role of plankton in our oceans and how they impact climate, food, and water security? Every second breath that we take comes from the photosynthesis and oxygen production that algae have. But within this broad uh, group of algae, you have some that are bad players. Um, they're known as harmful algal blooms. Some of them produce toxins, like uh, the ones that you see off the coast of Florida that decimate uh, fisheries. They are also formed in Maine, where they have a huge impact on the shellfish industry over there. They are also formed on the west coast. Uh, and in the Arabian Sea, we have Noctiluca, which doesn't produce any toxins, but it's having a huge impact on the food chain, on uh, the food supply, uh, the water security of the region, and I also mentioned energy security as well. So um, one of the things that we have to realize is that not all, all algae are bad, um, that there are only a few bad players, and they seem to do, be doing better than some of the good guys. So um, I think with uh, 
the new developments in technology and the, our ability to develop methods to contain them or harvest them for some other use, it's not all doom and gloom. Um, there are some opportunities also that are becoming available to us to harness these organisms and put them to other use. For instance, uh, noctiluca, as I said, can be used as a huge source of um, polyunsaturated fatty acids. It can provide um, a source for fertilizers. It can also be harvested for UV screening compounds, which can be used in cosmetics. So uh, the other harmful algal blooms may have some properties that could have some medical uh, applications, medicinal applications. So um, what we have to be mindful about is that um, what is causing these changes in our ecosystem is the warming of our waters, and that is directly related to the carbon dioxide that is released into the air, and also to our use of uh, our resources on land. So the more we pump um, nitrogen or and phosphorus into our oceans, it creates this problem of eutrophication where you have outbreaks of algal blooms. So um, we've got to realize that every action has a response in the ocean ecosystems. Um, it's not only the warming that happens in the open ocean that is causing these large blooms like Noctiluca, it's also happening in your backyard, uh, in the lakes and ponds that we see. And we also have to be mindful about the eutrophication that is being caused by human activity on land. So we have to make uh, find ways of managing our wastewater. In countries like the Middle East, you'll be surprised to know that they use tertiary-treated uh, seawater actually to grow plants in this desert, desert uh, lands. So um, there are ways that, uh, you know, treated uh, sewage water can be used productively. So algae themselves are essential, and most of them are good algae, but invasive algal blooms are harmful. Yes. So algae form the basis of the food chain, and all of proteins from the sea exist or come to be because of the the carbon dioxide is, that is algae housed from the atmosphere. And um, there are some scientists that are um, toying with the idea of geoengineering solutions, causing algal blooms deliberately in the oceans so that they can harvest CO2 from the atmosphere so algae are essential and could be even more essential. Yes, if um, if you get the right algae to suck out the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, you can use it to have a harness um, to store carbon. Uh, you can use it as a food source for other organisms. You can grow fish in those waters um, if you're interested in aquaculture. And you can harvest some other compounds from that that could be beneficial for human beings. So not all algae are bad. There are a few bad players, as I mentioned. But uh, algae in general are good. I think we'll leave it there. Dr. Gos, thank you very much for talking with us on Discern This. Thank you so much. And um, 
I really enjoyed this conversation with you and I wish you all the best as well. Thank you so much. Thank you.